I'm going to ask you um, one of the weirder questions that I've ever asked you. So, like, don't think that much about it. But think through this with me about what is your favorite scent? Like, you smell it, and every time, and you're just like, you know, like, whether it's that Yankee candle or, or that... Um, my, for me, like, you probably think I'm weird, it's cool, is Lemon Pledge, you know, like when you're dusting or someone else is dusting and you smell it. Um, like, I really like that smell. Like, it's cool, you know? Um, maybe for you, you know, it's like something like that, like candy apple or whatever. But then I want you to think about, so you keep that in mind, but then I also want you to think about your favorite weird scent. Keep in mind, like, let's try to keep this together in, like, PG, you know, like, we're all adults. Um, but think about your favorite weird scent, like the one where everybody else is kind of like, oh, but you really dig it. Um, for me, <laughs> it's the football locker room. <laughs> like if they sold a Yankee candle of football locker room of the smell of musty, sweaty football pads, I would burn it every day. I just, I walk into the football locker room and I'm just like, oh, it's, I, you can judge me all you want. That's fine. I'm about to hear yours too. So what I want you to do is take the next like 30 seconds or so, lean into your neighbor and tell them your favorite scent and your favorite weird scent. Ready? Go. I think my favorite part of that discussion is how many of you, how many of you just went, is that Skinner? Are we allowed to play Skinner in church? <laughs> I don't like this song. Like, I know. It's cool, all right? Um, so I want to hear, like, just a couple. These are the boring ones, but tell me somebody's favorite smell. Lavender, boring. Citrus, boring. Clean cotton, boring. Oh, whatever, whatever. All right, now, I want to hear everybody's favorite weird smell. Manure, Manure the barn, paint. Anybody else? Gas. Yes, gas is one of mine. I love the smell of gasoline. Don't sniff it too much or hurt. Um, <laughs> I heard from someone else. <laughs> it's bad for you. Anybody else? Spray paint. Struck match. That's a good one. I, uh, I also, I have this friend. He's not really that close of a friend, to be honest, but he will tell anyone who listens about how good skunk smells. And he's like, no, not if you get sprayed by it, but if you drive by it. Like I said, he's not really that good of a friend, okay? Um, but you know, like, so here's one thing, though, that I think we can all agree on. And we've talked about this before, but I'm going to make you hear it again. The worst smell in the world is fish, right? I've said this before. No one ever walks in a room and says, mmm, smells like fish in here, right? Like, it's always a bad thing. I say that all the time, and then one of my cow farmer friends was like, obviously, you've never walked in a room with cows stuck to your boot, have you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but nobody's ever been grilling a steak on a summer night and been like, ugh, I can't believe the neighbors are having steak tonight. But everyone who tells you about their favorite fish will always tell you about how it doesn't taste fishy, right? Like, well, if you deep fry it and you batter it and you slather some tartar sauce on it, you can't even tell it's fish. 
Well, if you just cook a steak right and eat it, it's always good. It's the difference, right? No one ever thinks that fish smells good. And if you do, don't even admit it to me because I'll, I'll introduce you to skunk guy and you guys can be friends forever. <laughs> He's going to be so mad when he watches this later. Oh, he knows. So fish is like gross, always gross. Even if you eat it, you have to admit that the smell of like a dead fish is disgusting. And you can imagine, so we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about the story of Jonah. And the story of Jonah, we, we, we talked about how Jonah was running away from God, and we said, you can run from God, but you cannot outrun God. And then last week, we talked about how Jonah stops running, and he turns around, and we said, you can turn around, and when you turn around, God is there waiting to bring you in. And we ended last week at the point when Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and he spent three days and three nights living inside of this giant fish big enough to swallow and hold him for three days. So even if you're the biggest fish fan on the face of the planet and you followed them on tour everywhere and sold grilled cheese sandwiches or whatever, even if you're the biggest fan of aquatic animals, you can admit that would be disgusting, right? Like there would be nothing more foul or gross than living inside the stomach of a fish. But today we, we get to the point of the story that's a really important part, and it's a good part for Jonah, really. And it ends at chapter 2 in the book of Jonah, and says this in verse 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So after three days and three nights inside the belly of this fish, Jonah gets vomited out. And I want to ask you something. I, I, don't raise your hand. Don't, don't participate. Just think this through. I know because I know enough about a lot of people's beliefs, that there are some of you in this room who don't believe this story to be true. I know there are some of you who without a doubt have never even questioned it, have never thought about it. You've heard it a hundred times in Sunday school. You know this story is true. But I know that there are enough of you in this room who are, who are critical thinkers, who are bright intellectuals, who read this story and say, no way, it's not possible. So here's what I want to ask both of those groups to do. I want to ask the first group, the one who's heard this a hundred times, to turn that off. To just for one second act like you've never heard this story before and maybe hear it for the first time. To the second group, the group who says, no way, it can't happen, I want to ask you to do something that might be a little difficult. But I want to ask you for the next couple of minutes to suspend that disbelief. If it takes saying play pretend, if it takes saying just imagine whatever it is, I want you to, whether you believe it's possible or not, to know that I do. And I firmly believe that this story happened as the Bible describes it. But I'm okay with you saying maybe I don't. If you're okay to say for the next 20 minutes or so, I'll follow. And Because the thing is, this, this story is, is true and it happened, but this story is way less about a fish and way more about God's endless pursuit of his people. And so I don't want you to get hung up on whether or not the fish happened. I want you to dig in to why this story happened. Because this is a much bigger story than a guy getting swallowed up by a fish. This is a story of God chasing all of his creation. And this isn't just a story of God chasing all of the middle-class white people who behave properly. This is a story of God chasing after some people who are flat-out evil. 
God had called Jonah to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of a country at the time called Assyria. And Assyria itself was one of the most evil places on the planet. And people say that and they're like, well, they gambled a lot. But because the country of Assyria was sick. I mean, like the last three weeks as I've been reading through and reading about Assyria and especially Nineveh, the capital, I've, I've like had to stop reading multiple times because it's so vile. And I'm about to share a quote with you from a history book about the, the, the city of Nineveh, and I want you to know that this is the censored, downgraded version of this quote, that it was more vile and more disgusting the first couple of times. And so we, we kind of like calmed it down so that you didn't leave. But this is just one history book's couple of lines about the city of Nineveh. It says, the Elam, Elamite general Dananu was filleted alive. His brother had his throat cut, and his body was divided into pieces to be distributed as souvenirs to the soldiers. Again, this is the calm version of some of the things that the Ninevites were doing. So when God calls Jonah to Nineveh, nobody's really blaming him for running away. But again, this story is so much less about a fish and so much more about the fact that God isn't just running after us. He's chasing every single person he created. And so when we talk about God chasing after us and God coming to love us, we're not just saying God only loves the people who live in two-story homes. God only loves the people who know you wear a collared shirt to church. You don't have to, by the way, just for the record. We're talking about God chasing after all of his creation. Whether it's people in North America, or people in the Middle East, or people in South Africa, every single person is a soul that he created, and he has not stopped chasing them to win them back to him. And I don't want you to miss that part of this story. Because he doesn't just do it by flashing a big cloud in the sky and saying, hey, I'm real, because that would be nice, but he doesn't do it that way. And he doesn't just chase after all of his people by sending burning pillars or whatever, but what he does is he tries and tries to send a message to us. And the way he sends the message to the Ninevites is one of the coolest ways that you'll ever read. You see, here's a little backstory on the city of Nineveh. The number one most heralded god in the city of Nineveh is a god named Dagon. It's spelled like Dagon, but I'm going to try and stop laughing at myself, so we're going to pronounce it Dagon today. <laughs> he said a bad word on the stage, <laughs> but that's not a bad word. Anyways, the god Dagon is the god of Nineveh, and he's a god who's basically, if you've ever seen The Little Mermaid, kind of looks like King Triton right? Like he's half man, half fish, but not like Little Mermaid, like this dainty little thing, like King Triton, like the kind of guy you wouldn't really want to meet in a fight. And then this is, so this is Dagon. He's the big, powerful warrior god who the entire city knows the story of, and all of Nineveh is afraid of Dagon, the half fish, half man god. And so if you kind of use your detective skills, you start to figure out that maybe God sent a fish to eat Jonah on purpose. Because after three days and three nights inside the belly of a fish, you can imagine what the stomach acids would do to his skin. 
And no doubt it would probably bleach them out and make him look really sickly and awful. And you can imagine that after three days of living inside the fish, that there is no amount of lava soap that is going to scrub that scent out. And so you can imagine after Jonah gets spit up on the shore and after he walks inland to get to Nineveh, that he's kind of like, you know that scent of junior high boy when you can smell them before you see them because they have so much Axe body spray on? This is what's happening to Jonah, right? Like he's walking down the road of Nineveh and people are going, hmm, there's a fish here. And then Jonah turns the corner and they see him and they're like, Dago, is that you? But this is what's happening in Jonah's life. He's this pale, smelling, reeking thing. But everybody in Nineveh starts to follow him. Because this guy, he might be Dagon. He might have something important to say. This might be something we need to listen to. And so their ears kind of perk up. And this wasn't an accident. God didn't think like, oh, the fish thing, that might work. But God intentionally knew how to get the attention of the Ninevites. And so Jonah starts walking through town. And Jonah chapter 3 tells us that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It's a huge city. It takes three days to walk across this city. But Jonah starts, and he begins to go into the city, a day's journey, and there he called out, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And you can imagine that, say, you go to a restaurant after, after church today, and you're at lunch, and some dude opens the door, and you smell him before you see him. No matter what he says, you're not listening. Says you're not listening, are you? Like it could, he could open the door and say, "Maysville will be overthrown in 40 days," and you'll be like, eh, "That'll be a cool Snapchat story." Back to my lunch. Like, like that's the end of it for you, right? But again, for the Ninevites to see this guy that they're pretty sure could possibly, maybe, quite be Dagon, they're they're gonna listen, and they want to know what this God they revere is saying. And they want to figure out what's happening here. You see, I, I think that we miss this sometimes when we read over stories like this or when we hear stories like this. We, we overlook the importance of God speaking so that we can hear. You see, when God is chasing after us, he's speaking in a way that we will hear. He wants us to hear him calling out to us. God wants to get our attention. And for the people of Nineveh, it looked like the god Dagon. In the mid-90s, um, Animal Planet, the network, was like becoming popular and becoming a thing. And, and um, I'll never forget, I was watching one day, and it was one of those like when animals go wild shows or something crazy like that. And all of a sudden, it cuts to this home video, you know, like the old big camcorder that people had to hold on their shoulder, and it was good for like three minutes of battery life, right? Like they had this big camera up, and they're, and they're filming their son's Little League baseball game, and you see in the middle of the infield this deer jump over the side fence and just start running through the game. And it, you know what, like you can imagine a field full of eight-year-olds see a deer, and half the kids are running away scared, and the 
other half are going, I saw Bambi. You think I could pet him? You think that's him? Like they're like trying to chase after him. So the parents are running on the field trying to get their kids off, you know, trying to, trying to save them. But in the midst of the chaos, somehow the deer hurts its leg. So this deer starts running. Somebody just said, oh, it's a video from 30 years ago. I think the deer is gone now. Okay? Like, it's okay. Half the people are like, I wonder if I could have shot it. Anyways, so the deer is running around the baseball field. It's limp, and it can't really go. So it gets back to the fence, and it tries to jump over the fence, but because it's hurt its leg, it can't do it. And so these people are filming still because who wants to help when you can film it, right? And then these other dads start to go out on the field, and they're trying to figure out what in the world are they going to do with this deer. And so they kind of start to corral the deer towards the fence, and there's a gate a couple feet down from where they are, and they kind of think if we just kind of as a group move toward the deer, eventually we can shoo him out the gate and life can go on. Well, the deer sees this group of guys moving toward him, and he must have seen Bambi too because he starts to freak out. And so in order, because he's this big, big deer and he doesn't know what else to do, he sees the fence in front of him, realizes he can't jump it, and he just lowers his head and starts banging it against the fence. And he is with all his might and all his strength trying to break through this chain link fence. And the dads are scooting closer, but, you know, like a couple of them are like, ah, never mind, we don't need to play baseball today. But the dads are, are scooting closer, trying to shoo this deer towards the gate. And it's this, it takes several minutes of time to collapse. And finally, finally, when the, when the, the moment seems to be ending, the, one, the dads don't know what else to do, one dad kind of turns and almost says to the camera, I wish we could speak deer. Because then we could tell him we're just trying to help him. Because if he could listen to us and we could tell him, hey, we want you to go, it's okay. And it's this moment when you realize that this is God's journey so much for us. Is he's trying every which way possible to chase after us, and we keep running because we think he's chasing us to punish us or chasing us to hurt us, when in reality he's just trying to say, if you would just listen to me, I'm trying to show you the way to freedom. He said, you keep banging your head against the fence. You keep running away and you keep getting in more pain and more sorrow and more storms. He said, but if you would just turn and run with me, I will show you the way to freedom. This is exactly what happens in Nineveh. Is God speaks in a way that all of Nineveh hears. And the hundreds of thousands of people who live in Nineveh, chapter 3, verse 5 says, believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. In the time that Nineveh is around, in the time this is happening, if you wanted to show someone that you were mourning, if you wanted to truly show them that you were tired, you would put on what we would basically call burlap, and you would only wear burlap, and you can imagine how comfortable that is, right? But the reason you're putting on sackcloth is because you want to show everyone that you are sorry, and that the way things were is not the way things will be. And so the entire city experiences what we, we call in church world, revival. And, and for some of you, you hear revival and you think about that time your mom drug you to church seven nights in a row and you had to wear a, the same suit all seven times and the one guy would stand on stage and he'd pound on the table and he'd tell you that you're terrible. And like, that's what revival means to you. But real revival, the kind of revival that God seeks isn't people coming to, to church seven nights in a row to eat bad food and listen to a guy yell. Real revival is when an entire city is turned upside down 
And the entire city begins to seek God. I mean, just imagine with me for a second. We talk all the time in here about the 50,000 people we want to reach. We said if you draw a 20-mile radius around our church, there's about 75,000 people in that circle. And we're pretty sure, according to most stats and studies, that about 50,000 of those people would say they don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't attend church regularly. They're not plugged into community. They don't have Jesus. And so we said our goal as a church is to reach that 50,000. Our goal as a church is to make an impact on that group of 50,000. And so we've made a dent and we've made progress, but I want you to imagine with me that if all, say there's 150 people in here today, that if all 150 of us next week brought one person, then all of a sudden the dent that we've made in the, the 50,000 is now a dent of 300. And then imagine with me that the next week we all bring 300 people, 300 people, bring 300 more people to learn about Jesus and to follow Jesus. Imagine now that all of a sudden there's a 600-person dent in the, in the size, in the, in the 50,000. Sorry, numbers get me tripped up. We start talking about math. It gets really nerve-wracking. But you can imagine what kind of revival would come if all of a sudden 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 people learn about Jesus all at the same time and start telling someone else and telling someone else who tells someone else who tells someone else. Well, this is what happens in Nineveh. And all of a sudden, the entire city is swept under in what God is doing in Nineveh. And then word reached the king of Nineveh. And he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh and said, By the decree of the king and his nobles, neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. But when God saw what they did, how they had turned their evil way, he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So revival happens in Nineveh because Jonah went through and said, God has a message for you. The entire city is saved from destruction because of Jonah. The entire city is saved because God never once stopped chasing after Nineveh. And I want to make two points about this because I want you to hear this. The first thing I want you to know is that revival happens when people can hear in a way they understand. When people can hear about what God is offering them, when people can see what Jesus has done for them in a way that makes sense to them, in a way that they understand, it's how revival starts. It's why we try not to use too many fancy church words. It's why I tell funny jokes so that you start to listen and see. It's why we do things the way we do, so that everyone who hears us can hear in a way that they understand that Jesus Christ came to this earth to start the pursuit of us. The second thing that I think you need to learn from this is that it always starts with people. And there are prophets and there are times when God specifically sends people to address a king or a queen or something that's going on. But time and time again, 
when God wants to make the biggest impact, when Jesus wants to make the biggest difference, they don't go to the governor, they don't go to the emperor, they don't go to the laws, they go to the people. God doesn't say, once all the laws are right, then my people will be good. He doesn't say, once the leader in office is definitely a really good Christian, once the leader in office really starts to enforce the Bible as, as curriculum, whatever, whatever it is, none of that is what he says. But time and time again, in stories like Jonah, he shows that revival and that impact and that changing the world starts with regular old people and young people, too. But it's not about the politics or the government. It's not about the most powerful person in town. It's not about the, the city as a whole. It's about individual people having their lives changed. It's about individual people hearing the message that God wants them to hear. Because that message that God wants them to hear is, is very clear is that he hasn't stopped his pursuit of us. And that though we might run from him all the time, though we might run away as many ways as possible, though we might try as hard as we can to go the opposite direction, he's patiently waiting there for us to turn around. And what's so interesting about this conversation is typically when we talk about God patiently waiting for us, we always talk about God as love. And I was thinking this week about a message in a way that so many of us can understand. And, and for so many of us to hear that there is a Heavenly Father who has this compassionate heart towards us and who loves us no matter what. For so many of us, that's what it did it. But then I think about my friend Greg. And my friend Greg is a smart guy. He he's went to college on a full math scholarship. And he, he does all of the right things and knows all the right things. But for a long time, we knew that Greg didn't know who Jesus was. And then finally one day, Greg heard someone talking about, about sin. And Greg had heard the God is love message enough. He, he knew that there was a God who loved him, but what did that matter to him? His parents loved him, his grandparents loved him, that didn't matter. But then he heard the message in a different way. And Greg heard that he wasn't probably as good a person as he thought he was. And that what God desired was perfection. And he realized that even, even someone like him couldn't be perfect. And then the message continued that when you're not perfect, the punishment you get is eternal hell and separation from all things good. And that's the moment when God spoke in a way that he understood. And he went from someone who for a long time had been walking away from faith and church to finally seeing that that's the God who saved him, is the God who knew he was destined for eternal punishment, but the God who continued to pursue him anyway. And it was in a moment very similar to this one. When the communion was about to be passed and the, and the bread and the cup were coming, that Greg realized for the first time that coming to God, that going to spend eternity with God in heaven wasn't something he could earn, it wasn't something he could do because he wasn't good enough. And it's in that moment that he realized Jesus pursued him by going to the cross 
And so maybe today is the first day that you learned that for the very first time, that God loves you so much. Yes, he does. But he loves you so much that he doesn't want the eternal wrath and punishment of hell for you. And that he wants to see you in heaven in eternity someday, the place where there is no pain, the place where there is no sorrow. But you cannot get there on your own. You can only get there by following Jesus. The Jesus who spoke to us in our language by becoming a man and dying on the cross. So here at communion, as the bread and the cup are passed, remember that this was the language he spoke to us when he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my cup poured out for you. Do this 